by all sorts of behavior, much of which has been harmful to women. Friends, there is no skirting the issue. The use of this text by many people in the modern church of Jesus Christ has often promoted a culture of misogyny and abuse and mistreatment and oppression. Any cultural observer has noticed that we have been flooded with news in recent years of sexual predators building multimedia empires worth millions of dollars by their ability to sexually abuse and manipulate and coerce victims into submission and silence. And tragically, as we have seen again in recent days, this is not confined to those outside of the church. It is all too present in the church as well. And far too often this text, the one that we come to today, has been used as a linchpin of a doctrinal system that inaccurately relegates women to second-class citizens in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This text has been used to caricature the Christian church as an out-of-touch relic from a time long ago that bears no influence or connection to the modern world as we know it. Texts like the one that we'll read in just a few moments have been used and are proof positive for the enemies of the Christian church that nothing should be believed in the Bible, if the Bible speaks about people like this regardless of their gender. This text comes to us this morning at a time when gender is a hotly debated topic. In fact, gender is the hotly debated topic in our culture. Androgyny, transgender, sexual dysphoria, all of these issue from confusion about what it means to be created in the image of God and what that truly means biblically and how that impacts the lives of both men and women, boys and girls. Marriages suffer because people inaccurately understand and misapply this text. Single men and women are confused about their role and purpose in the life of the local church because they don't see themselves in this text. Churches have split over this text before us today. People have left our church because of this text today. People struggling with their sexual identity. People suffering from abuse and oppression and coercion and mistreatment. Perpetrators of sexual abuse. Yes, it seems that absolutely everyone sees this text as either a friend or a foe, an ally to your worldview that supports you or a personal attack on your identity. As we approach this text this morning, we must do so with an understanding that this portion of Scripture is just as viable and helpful and authoritative and inspired as every other text in the Bible, even those that might be easier for you to agree with. And as we approach this text this morning, we must also do so understanding that these are the revealed words of God that cannot, indeed must not, be simply dismissed as a cultural relic of the first century. These words are helpful to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in every age. Whatever may be your past experience with the church, we are so glad that you are here. And whatever you have suffered, perhaps even as a result of this text and the way people have used it against you, whatever challenges you are facing this morning, whatever is going on in your heart right now, Before we even read the text, the Bible is always the place to go to when we're looking for help. 
So I invite you to open your Bible to 1 Peter. Our time together will be greatly helped by you following along in a copy of God's Word. If you did not come with a Bible that you can call your own, there should be a Bible underneath the seat in front of you. You could just reach under there, grab that. It should be underneath in front of you or near you. We would love for you to take that copy of God's home word, uh, God's word home with you. First uh, Peter should be around page 1014. If you're not very familiar with the Bible, large numbers are chapter numbers, small numbers are verse numbers, and you will be helped by keeping that copy of God's word open the whole time during the sermon. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 2, verse 11, even though we're focusing on chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, because Peter has been linking all of these sections together, and it helps remind us of what he is trying to do throughout the entirety of this section if we read them all together. Peter writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as of Jesus Christ himself, we're here speaking to us today. Chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now, I just want you to notice that word conduct. If you like to write in your Bible, every time you see it, circle it or underline it or put a box around it. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. And when they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning, uh, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with an imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, 
as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us in this time. Lord, I know that I feel inadequate for the task, and I know this text is difficult for us to consider. I pray for these, my friends, that you would help all of us now in this moment to give our attention to your word, that we might have ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of God as it has been decisively revealed in the word of God. We pray that you would help us now to be able to understand and to grow in understanding, that you would help us to apply your word And that as we apply your word, that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, the mighty friend of sinners. Father, I pray for those especially who have a hard time even hearing this text read today. I pray that you would encourage them. I pray that you would build them up in a holy faith. I pray that you would comfort them. I pray, Father, for those right now who might think that this text does not apply to them, that because of their station in life and they don't see themselves in this text, There's nothing here for them. Lord, may we all be reminded that this is God's word to all of us. And we ask, Father, that you would help us as a local church grow together as we grow in love for Christ and love for one another. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last several weeks, we have seen how the mission of submission is directed to those most likely to be taken advantage of and who are most likely to suffer for Peter. Citizens in a corrupt government, chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Slaves who are serving cruel masters, chapter 2, verse 18 through 25. And now women married to unbelieving, unbelieving or at least disobedient men, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. But astonishingly, each time the apostle has told these people under authority to subject themselves, to voluntarily yield to those in authority over them, even when they do not wield their authority for the benefit of those in their care. And each time the apostle has reinforced the idea that the good works of Christians are intended for mission, as he has commended submission for the sake of the mission of the church. This time is no different, though instead of addressing one group, he addresses two So we have a very simple outline with two points that will frame our study of this passage today. Point one, wives. Point two, husbands. Notice first, wives. Look in verse one. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Peter has continued his thought from chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, in verse 1, likewise, but this does not suggest in any way that the relationship between wives and husbands is anything like the relationship between servants and masters or citizens and governing authorities. Wives are not slaves who serve or constituents to be ruled in the house. And yet he does say, verse 1, wives, not women in general, are to submit to their own husbands, 
not men in general, just as citizens should submit to governing authorities, not people in general, and servants should submit to their own masters, not individuals in general. Wives, the apostle tells us, are to voluntarily yield or willingly submit to the authority of their husbands, which leads us to immediately ask, is Paul talking or Peter talking to every wife? What if a wife is married to a non-Christian husband? Look with me in verse 1. So that even if some of the husbands do not obey the word, Peter immediately assumes that some of these women are married to non-Christian men. But what does it mean to be a non-Christian? Look with me in chapter 2, verse 7. Let's just go above. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Same verb, disobey, same object, the word, and it helps us see that a rejection of the gospel is not simply unbelief in relation to God's message, it is also disobedience to God's message. Friends, have you considered that it is possible for you to believe or to affirm the storyline of the Bible and the facts of Christian history and the good news of Jesus' birth and life and death and burial and resurrection and ascension and undermine it all and reject it all by your disobedience to God's message, by your refusal to obey God's word, by your refusal to repent, that is to turn away from sin and to forsake it in your life and cling only to Christ as you become more and more aware of your sin from the Bible. In a world that is filled with so many belief systems and ideologies, I am convinced that this is one of the greatest dangers in our age. It is terrifyingly easy to think that Christianity is simply a matter of believing all of the right things in contrast to the people who believe all of the wrong things. But Peter helps us see here, even as he's addressing these wives, that Christianity is not simply believing all of the right things in contrast to people who believe all of the wrong things. It is also believing the right things and doing the right things. It is possible for you to believe all of the right things and go to hell. Belief and obedience go hand in hand for Peter. Belief in Jesus' sinless life on this earth. Belief in Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross. Belief in Jesus' victorious resurrection from the grave. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus came and lived and died in the place of sinners? You can believe that today, friends. You can repent and you can trust in Christ. And the Bible tells us that if you trust in him right now, he will save you. If you come to him, he will never cast you out. One of the great tragedies of our age because of the way that we parade celebrity Christians in front of everybody else is that we are prone to think that unless we have all of our life together, that God does not accept us. But I am here to tell you today that it is impossible for you to sin yourself beyond the reach of God's grace that your life can look like an absolute train wreck, and that if you repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he will save you, and that it is possible, as hard as it might 
be able to believe to think that it's true. For you to believe in Christ even while sinning because you are repenting. Peter tells us that we have to believe the right things. We do have to know the right things, that Jesus Christ came and he lived and he died and he did it for you and that he will forgive you if you believe that, if you repent of your sins. But he also tells us that you can believe all of that. And perhaps you're one of those people who are here today. This isn't your first time at church. You've been here many times. You believe all of those things, but your obedience to Jesus' message would say something different about what you actually believe. You affirm all of the right things. You can sign our statement of faith. But your life does not manifest that you believe those things or that you really care about what's written in that statement of faith. And as you become more and more aware of sin in your life, you find yourself not adjusting your life to what the Scripture says, but adjusting Scripture to accommodate the way that you want to live your life. Friend, if that's you and you're here and you call yourself a Christian, you are in a very dangerous place. You are in one of the most dangerous places because it's possible for you to think that the preacher is always talking to somebody else and that he's never talking to you. Peter wants us to see that we must believe the right things that are revealed in Scripture. You might be here today and think that everything I said you need to believe is crazy, but the Scripture is clear. These are the things of salvation. But you might believe all of these things of salvation and not adjust your life to live in accord with them. Friend, the message is the same for you. Repent and come to Christ. If you're a guest with us or a non-Christian, this is what the, the church calls the basic message of the gospel. And if you'd like to learn more about this, we would be delighted to speak with you. You can find me at the tunnel after the service, but all of our members would be willing to speak with you. Just pull them aside and simply say, I would like to learn more about what he was talking about. Can you help me? But perhaps you're here and you do not feel comfortable talking to anyone. That is okay. Why don't you do what we suggested at the beginning of our time together? Take one of those Bibles home and then turn to page 836. You can go ahead and flag it right now and just begin reading the Gospel of Mark and take time to read the life of the Lord Jesus and see how Jesus deals with sinners and see what he says in the Gospel of Mark to those who he's calling to himself. That is a wonderful way to learn more about Jesus Christ and him crucified. When the Christian message was being proclaimed in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, what they saw happening is the very same thing that we saw happening here at this church in the last several years and many things that churches see all around the world, that some people respond in faith. Some of them are men and some of them are women. And some of them were young, and some of them were old, and some of them were single, and some of them were married, and sometimes of those married people, only one of them responded in faith. And as you can imagine, what happened then is that these new Christian wives in particular began to wonder, what is the most pleasing life to God? Does God want me to follow the leadership and submit to the authority of my non-Christian husband? Is that the, the Christian thing to do? Before I was a Christian, I didn't think about that. But now that I'm a Christian, what do I need to do in this relationship? How do I live my life? To which Peter is very clear in verse 1. Wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, while addressing wives with unbelieving husbands in particular, Peter seems to have all wives in view. Verse 1, 
even if. Indicating that some of these husbands obey the word, and some of these husbands do not obey the word, and their obedience or disobedience is not the deciding factor as to whether or not this text applies to these wives and they should voluntarily yield in submission to their authority. That seems like a really hard teaching. But sisters, let me lighten your load because I don't think Peter is trying to be heavy-handed. In fact, quite the opposite. I think Peter is, is trying to relieve you of burden, especially if you are married to a non-Christian husband who is being disobedient to God's word, or you're married to a Christian husband who is living in disobedience to God's word. Peter is saying that you do not have the responsibility of ensuring your husband's obedience to God's word. It is not your responsibility to make him a Christian. It is not your responsibility to make him do family devotions. It is not your responsibility to make him humble or holy. It is not your responsibility to make him lead or take initiative. It is not your responsibility to make him wise or to make the right decisions. It is not your responsibility to make him patient and kind. God has called you to subject yourselves, to submit yourselves to your own husbands, even if some do not obey the word, and as hard as that may be. And to be honest, I can only begin to fathom how unbelievably difficult that actually is when you're married to a non-Christian man or a husband disobedient to God's word. Peter tells us, that you can live a life that is precious in God's sight while simultaneously fulfilling the mission of the church. Verse 9. Wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won, gained, converted, redeemed, saved, It is not a promise, but Peter clearly gives us hope, and he helps us see this submission, as it is throughout the entirety of this section, is a subversive submission. It's a subversive submission that isn't quite what we often think it is in our culture. I want you to follow along with me and pay careful attention to all of the purpose statements of why these Christians are to do good deeds and to submit. Look in verse 12 of chapter 2. So that... When they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Why are you to do these good deeds? You're to do them so that when they see them, they see something different about your life in contrast to the way that everyone else is living life. And what's going to happen is that they will glorify God on the day when Jesus Christ returns. They will be converted. Verse 15, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Why are you to submit to these governing authorities? Not because they're always right. Not because you voted for them. Not because you think they're great. Not even because you think they're Christian. That by doing good, you should put to silence the foolish of ignorance people. It's a subversive submission. Verse 19 of chapter 2. For when you do good and suffer for it and you endure... You receive credit in the sight of God. Why do you, as servants to unjust masters, serve them faithfully? Because when you are doing that, you are doing obedience to God, 
And God rewards those even when they're suffering in ways that they could never comprehend. You are earning credit and favor, reward, not salvation, but reward with God. Chapter 3, verse 1. So that they may be one. Peter does not say, wives, what you need to do is you need to submit to these husbands because they are always right. Any wife in this room would tell you they are not always right. And if you can't find one, go talk to mine. They're not always right. And they don't always make the right decision. And they're not always the most godly. And many times they sin. Peter says, you do this so that they might be one. The purpose of this submission is not simply because you're inferior and they're superior. Anybody who's taught that is wrong. The purpose of this submission is that they might be one. God is using you in this difficult moment as an evangelist to them. The subversive submission of Christians is intended for mission. But how? How will these husbands who do not obey the word be one? Verse 1. Look at what Peter says. He tells us the means of how this is going to take place. Without a word, by the conduct of their wives. The disobedient to the word will be one without a word. But what does that mean when faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ? Clearly, these wives for Peter have already shared the gospel with their husbands and called them to repentance from sin and called them to faith in Christ. But Peter helps us see something that we can begin to apply in a wider frame here. There comes a time and with family members in the life of a family when we do not constantly speak to them about coming to faith in Christ. There comes a time after we have clearly spoken the gospel that we actually win them over by verse 1 and 2, our conduct, an idea that Peter has been highlighting throughout this letter that he now applies to wives. Flip over with me to chapter 1, verse 17. You're going to see that word that I told you to circle earlier. Chapter 1, verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear toward God throughout the time of your exile. And then just look up in chapter 1, verse 15. Be holy in all of your conduct. You see it again in chapter 2, verse 12, the very beginning of the verse. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Even after our passage in chapter 3, verse 16. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. Unbelievers must hear about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no way for someone to become a Christian other than hearing the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus Christ saves sinners who repent of their sins and place their faith in him. We must share that gospel with people. We must proclaim that gospel to people. We cannot be silent about that gospel to every man and woman and child on planet earth. They must hear the free proclamation of the gospel, but... What Peter also wants us to see is that unbelievers need to see, verse 2, the gospel on display. As he applies it specifically to these wives here, they will see, verse 2, your respectful and pure conduct. Part of the reason that there are so many skeptics 
is that they hear the gospel message that Christians proclaim, but they do not see the lives of Christians changed by the gospel that they preach. Unsubmissive wives, unfaithful husbands, undisciplined children, unruly citizens, unholy people. And they see that. And they look into the church and they say, I get enough of that in the world. I don't want to be a part of that. If that's what the church of Jesus Christ is, then let the church of Jesus Christ keep it for themselves. Peter immediately says, in the most trying and difficult of circumstances, not only the world, but these husbands in particular, need to clearly hear the gospel proclaimed. He's been very clear on that. And see the gospel changing lives to the point that people who otherwise are being taken advantage of would submit and voluntarily yield to the authority of another. And that there comes a moment in the lives of our family members when we stop sharing the gospel and we live like a very faithful Christian in front of them. Several years ago in our own marriage, we had a very difficult time with one family member that we were trying to exhort. I was trying to exhort this person in particular. They were on Megan's side of the family. And while speaking with a mentor, I felt an unusual responsibility that every time this person did something that was contrary to the gospel, that what I needed to do is make sure that they knew that it was contrary to the gospel. And here were all of the reasons why they were wrong for doing that. And they needed to repent of that because I was convinced that if they knew that, part of the reason they were doing these sinful things is that they just didn't have the right information. And then I had a really good mentor who said, you know, several years ago, right after I started pastoring and ministering to other families and we had a large family and I was sharing the gospel regularly with other people and I'd come home for vacation and around Christmas time or the holidays and they would speak to me about things. I assumed that what they wanted in that moment was all of the wise advice that I had that other people wanted to hear. And I learned that to them, I was still their son or their brother or their in-law, and that the most godly thing I could do at that moment was to live like a very faithful Christian in front of them and pray that God would put other Christian people in their life who would share the truth of Christ with them faithfully. My relationship with that family member is so much better. Not because I don't care for their soul. I've made it very clear And for those of you who are burdened for your unbelieving family members, they're not going to start thinking that you no longer care about what you cared about. You've made it very clear. Repent, trust in Christ, this is the way. And now what you need to do is love them faithfully and be gentle and pray that the Lord helps you keep your anger under control and your mouth closed and be kind and gentle and generous, and pray that God would put other people in their lives while you live a radically faithful Christian life in front of them, being faithful to your employer, and faithful to your spouse, and faithful to your kids, or faithful in your singleness, or faithful in your suffering, faithful to your church. What they need to see is that the gospel informs the way that you live. So when they come in for the holidays, and they see Even though they're there for that one time of the year, you're getting up and you're going to church whether they come or not. That the way that you love Jesus Christ changes the way that you live your life in front of them. And though they are important in your life, they are not more important than the Lord. And then ask that the Lord would put other people in their lives. It takes a burden 
off of you. And it takes a burden off of these wives. They don't have to manage this person's godliness. They need to manage their own faithfulness in this very difficult moment. But Peter tells these wives and all of us, when they see the transformation of our lives, they will be more inclined to believe the gospel we proclaim, which is why he focuses on internal, not external adornment. Verse 3. Do not let your adorning be the external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Though many of us, if not all of us, read these verses and begin to think, that's really weird. Peter's people and his readers in this context would not have read those verses that way. In fact, they would have read these verses and they would have said, of course, of course, this is what it means to be a godly person with good conduct. They would not have been astonished at what Peter was saying. They would have said, yes, godly people, godly wives with good conduct focus on internal transformation, not external beauty. That is an obvious thing. They wouldn't have had the visceral reaction that we have, that I have, that perhaps many of you have in our own cultural context, because they would have understood that Peter was not prohibiting women from fixing their hair nicely or putting on any jewelry or wearing any pretty clothes because the text actually says, do not put on clothes. And that is not what Peter is saying. They would have understood that he was saying the adornment God desires is not external. The adornment that God desires is internal that God wants you to cultivate, verse 4, the hidden person of the heart. My dear sisters, the world has lied to you. Tragically, many in the church have also lied to you. And we have been so incredibly unhelpful. We have told you that your value and your worth is in how you look and the size of your waistline. And nothing could be farther from the truth. The world is wrong. And the people in the church who have said that to you are wrong. They have not only been wrong, but they have been harmful. And in ways that I cannot even begin to fathom for you, it has been damaging to your souls. But one of the difficulties and traps for you is that you'll read this text and begin to misunderstand it yourselves and think, the very thing that Peter is telling me to focus on, internal beauty, actually doesn't work. It hasn't gotten me what I wanted. It didn't get me a godly husband. It hasn't gotten me a husband at all. It didn't get me a husband who ultimately trusted in Christ. In fact, my husband never trusted in Christ. It didn't give me the type of marriage relationship that I wanted. So now I'm going to focus on these other things. And instead of looking at cultivating the internal beauty that God desires, godly character and holiness and purity and Christ-likeness and sacrificial love and selflessness, we begin to cultivate these external things because they seem to actually do something for us. And that is not only a danger for the ladies in the room, that is a danger for all of the men. Because the very things that don't seem to provide the things that we want and long for, don't work, so we turn our attention elsewhere. And Peter says, it's all wrong. Do not let your adorning be external things. 
Let the adorning be the internal things, the things that, that God sees and are precious in God's sight, the things that no one else commends, but God commends, the things that other people push down, but God lifts up, the things that when God thinks of what is good and right and holy and precious, characterize a godly woman's life. Internal beauty. What matters to God is not what people look at, And it's not what people wear on the outside, but it is a godly character, a character that manifests itself in the way that you behave in your everyday life. Verse four, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Peter is not saying, if you are a loud or talkative person, you're in sin. Peter is saying that whereas clothing and jewelry and braided hair fade away, gentleness and quiet, humble dispositions are imperishable, and they actually evidence submission. They evidence a voluntary yielding to appropriate authority in life. And once again, appropriate authority. Not all women in general, but wives to your own husbands, and slaves to your own masters, and citizens to your own government. There are appropriate authorities that we need to yield to, and when we do that, it evidences Godly character, which sometimes means we have to be quiet and we can't assert our rights and we don't always get what we want. We yield because it reveals what our hope is actually in. Verse five. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. By submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Peter provides an example from holy women of the past to encourage women in these churches to submit to their own husbands with a gentle and quiet spirit. These verse five holy women actually distinguished themselves as those who hope in God by submitting to their husbands, to those who do not obey the word, not because their husbands were right or because their husbands were intellectually superior or because their husbands were morally Uh, superior or they were more spiritual, but because they were confident that God would reward those who put their trust in him. But notice who he draws their attention to in verse six, Sarah, the mother of Christian believers who, as Paul argues in Galatians chapter four, just as he argues for Abraham, brings forth children of promise. He is not saying, as many people have heard wrongly taught, You need to earn your favor as Sarah did when she obeyed Abraham when he told her to lie about who he was. You need to do the same, and if you do things like that, then you're actually her children. In fact, the reference isn't even to that text at all. He is actually saying, by faith, you are her children, children of the covenant, children of promise. You are Christians, you are believers, you are daughters of Christ, so, not if, but so, do good. And do not fear anything that is intimidating. He's not saying earn it if, he's saying because you are her children, so do this, do not fear anything that is intimidating, do good. Brothers and sisters, the doing of good is what distinguishes the children of promise for Peter from those who are not the children of promise. Drop down to chapter three, verse 10. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. 
Let him seek peace and pursue it. Chapter three, verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Chapter three, verse 16. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile you, they revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good than should, uh, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Verse 19 of chapter four. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The example of Sarah helps us see that the children of God are children of hope. They hope in God, they hope in Christ, they hope in his return, they hope in his coming judgment, and they hope that there is a day when God will make all wrong things right. And hope for them is not some fanciful wish. I hope that this happens, but hope for them is a fact and a reality. I know that because I have placed my faith in Christ, a day is coming that even in this most difficult of circumstances, God will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness from this. Peter speaks to these women and he tries to encourage them. He's not here trying to lay more burden on them, but he's actually alleviating burden from them and he's helping them see that in these difficult moments, you daughters of Sarah, you precious sisters of the covenant, you wonderful Christian women can live lives that are precious to God and pleasing to God and God loves you for it and you're advancing the mission of the church. And just as a word before we continue, For all of you in that circumstance, please hear from this pulpit and from all of these pastors at this church. You are a gift to the church. Your suffering is a gift to the church. I did not say I delight in your suffering, and I'm not saying you should delight in your suffering, but your suffering is a gift to the church because the only thing that explains the fact that you keep trusting in Christ is the reality of the gospel and the certainty of the hope that is before you. Because for all, all other intents and purposes, you would walk away. Wives, notice second, husbands, verse seven. Likewise, wives, live with your, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Only one verse is addressed to the husbands because Peter's focus is on those who are most likely to experience mistreatment and oppression and abuse from authorities rather than those who exercise authority. One of the wrong ways that people read this text is they think women really need to get it together. The guys were pretty good. That is not what Peter's trying to do at all. Peter's trying to help them see that these people who are oppressed and are most likely to be taken advantage of need the encouragement. So he gives the most amount of exhortation to them in this difficult moment. But unlike the previous groups that he's addressed, he actually addresses husbands. But when he addresses them, verse seven, likewise, husbands, he does not tell them to submit to their wives. Nowhere in the New Testament is there a command or even an implication that husbands should submit to their wives. Rather, he lays a responsibility at their feet. Verse seven, live with your wives in an understanding way or live with your wives according to knowledge. Live with your wives 
according to the knowledge of God's will. Husbands should live with their wives informed by the knowledge of God's will and of what he demands of them to do in that relationship. And what has he demanded of them? I want you to all turn with me to Ephesians chapter five. Peter did not write this text, but it is the single longest exhortation. In fact, the, it is this text in reverse where Wives get all of the exhortation in this passage. Husbands get all of the exhortation in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. God calls husbands to live with their wives according to knowledge. He calls them to live with their wives in an understanding way, not to manage their submission. He is to show honor to the woman. He is to love the woman. Notice all of the commands. He is to give up his own rights for the woman. He is to love her and not himself. He is to defer for her sake so that she might be without spot or blemish, so that she might be cherished and loved, so that she might be taken care of and held high. Husbands and all men in the room, God has not called you to manage the submission of women in marriage or in the church. God has called you to live a sacrificial life for the sake of other people, especially in the context of marriage. You are to show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, physically. I think that's what it means when we look at verse 6, and he says, Do not fear anything that is intimidating. What is intimidating most of the time about most men is that they are physically stronger. But I also think what he's trying to highlight is not just the physicality. There's this intimidation that this woman experiences. She is weaker socially because she can be taken advantage of. She has no rights in the first century. If her husband leaves her, she'll be taken advantage of. Could not only lose her marriage, but lose her life. The very people that need to be cared for are not the husbands, but the women and the children, which is what makes the Bible one of the most radical books on the planet. The Bible is not anti-women and anti-children. In fact, the Bible is one of the most pro-women and pro-children books ever to exist, advocating that they would be seen as, notice what he says, co-heirs of the grace of life. Not inferiors, but equals. He doesn't highlight all the differences and how women are different than men and men are better than women. He says, you're both co-heirs. You're both made in the image of God. 
You both get the same inheritance. You're both sinners and you both need to repent. But if you both repent, you're both going to heaven because you both have the same savior. You both can meaningfully contribute in the life of the local church. You both can be members of the church. You both can use the giftedness that God has given you even in different ways for the good of other people. Though you contribute differently does not mean that you're not equal. You are co-heirs of the grace of life. All of these promises that are his are yours. You don't matter to society, but you sure matter to God. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. You don't have to sit outside of the sanctuary like all of the Muslim women. You get to walk right in, and you get to know who Jesus Christ is. And husbands, if you don't treat them like that, you are in opposition to God. It is the most pro-women document on planet Earth because it is aware the men would use their societal standing in the first century and in the 21st century to silence the very people they're supposed to protect. And they would use their physicality to intimidate people into listening to them. So they back up. And Peter says, if that's you, verse 7, your prayers are hindered. God turns a deaf ear to the man who does not live with a woman with kindness and gentleness. God does not hear the prayer or bless the life of the man who oppresses women. He might make it in this life. He will not make it in the next God is actively opposed to people who use their authority to silence others. So Peter says, you are to show honor. You are to cherish. You are to care for. You are to uphold as precious. You are to be gentle with even when they maybe don't deserve to be shown gentleness. Your job is not to manage submission. Your job is to show honor. Her job is not to manage your godliness. Her job is to subject herself to your authority in appropriate context and ways. And the husband who ignores this command will find, verse 7, their prayers hindered. And brothers and sisters, we would be foolish to think, especially brothers, that does not mean that you are not one of God's children. God does not hear the prayer of the unbeliever except when they turn in repentance. God does not bless with favor those who are in positions of authority who abuse those under them by mistreating them. Now, I want to take a few minutes, and I just want to apply the text in a few different ways. First, a wife should expect her husband to love her sacrificially, not manage her submission. Wives, you need to hear that so that you know if you're being mistreated. It is not your husband's job to manage your submission. It is to love you sacrificially. Husbands do not have the responsibility to ensure or coerce or compel that you submit to them. They have the responsibility of cherishing. Well, what does that mean? I want to read a testimony for you from one of the Christian women that I emailed this week asking for help from this text. As for my life experience so far, I am learning what submission to a husband is not. It is not blindly checking your brain at the door. 
It is not following a man who demands submission through manipulation, coercion, force, or any kind of threats. That should be a red flag. God does not manipulate or force us to submit to him, but rather demonstrated selflessness and sacrifice, and a husband is called to model Christ's example. For a long time, I truly thought I was pleasing God by allowing my husband full reign over my inheritance. Through my own foolishness and fear of what others might think of me if they knew how my husband was treating me, and through some unhelpful teaching on submission, I yielded in these ways. What ended up happening is that I empowered and fed his idol of doing whatever he wanted because he had the money to do so. In retrospect, I think that the wisest course for me would have been bringing a trusted friend into the process of what was happening much sooner than I did, and then highlighting how my husband was emotionally bullying me for money when the first money started to come in. I could have started the biblical chain of command much sooner, referencing Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Saying that, same person, I also firmly believe that women are still called to subject themselves to Christ even in abusive situations. I want to be very clear here. Be very careful. Same person. I don't think this means we enable, condone, or do nothing about abuse. But I think we can demonstrate our hope and our trust are in God by not retaliating or taking revenge for the wrong done to us, but rather trusting that God will deal with that person and that it is the job of the appropriate authorities to deal with that person. And one day he will make all wrong things right. This also plays out by me not gossiping or slandering or treating the abuser, oppressor, or manipulator in a way that is contrary to God's word. I need to give them the appropriate respect. This demonstrates that we are entrusting ourselves to God and are free to do good and walk in humility and kindness. This also means that we do not stand in the way of the abuser experiencing the consequences of their actions. All the strength that it takes to do this comes from continually placing our hope, trust, and faith in God's character and submitting ourselves to him. Here's another testimony. This is a hard teaching. I entered my Christian walk with the, the passage from First and Second Peter in mind. It taught me how to serve Christ and suffer well, but it also told me that I should obey my husband. I was the only Christian in my circle of friends. There was no one to help me put passages like this in perspective, but even now, as a more mature Christian, it is still difficult. I was not only under the submission to a husband, but to mental illness, to alcoholism and unfaithfulness and abuse, verbal abuse. It was hard to separate my husband from his acting out, and in the end, I had to yield until the day I'd had enough. To say that it is possible for men to be won over by the actions of their wives is a lot of pressure. My husband was never won over by gentleness, inner beauty and reverence, or purity. I learned only God himself can change a heart. There's another way to apply it. This is by Jonathan Lehman in an article he put out. Philosophers distinguish between the authority of command, which possesses an enforcement mechanism, and the authority of counsel, which doesn't. Parents, governments, and churches possess the former, husbands and pastors the latter. An authority of counsel is true authority because God does not lay a moral burden on wives and church members to submit, and there is an eschatological enforcement mechanism. 
but it is in God's hand, not ours. Husbands and pastors are like middle managers who are in charge of their department but cannot actually fire anyone. They're required to use more winsome tactics if they want their department members to follow. In other words, the fact that husbands and elders possess no enforcement mechanism changes the nature of how their authority must be exercised. It forces a man to be patient, long-suffering, tender, and consistent. It requires him to live with his wife and church in an understanding way. It requires him to woo and to be winsome. He must work for growth over the long run, not forced outcomes and decisions in the short run, which is why Paul tells Timothy to teach with all patience. What good is a forced decision or forced love from a wife or a member of the new covenant? A husband or an elder, elder, want to, I have no idea what that quote meant there. Jonathan wrote a bad sentence. (laughs) To put it another way, an authority of counsel requires husbands and elders to honor those they lead as personally equal and positionally equal, while a police officer or the parent of a young child will sometimes override the agencies of those they lead for purposes of protection and instruction, respectively, a husband or an elder can never do that. They must always appeal to a person's own agency. They possess a variety of authority particularly suited to partnership and collegiality. Their leadership requires collaboration, involvement, and consent from the ones that they lead. Submission is not forced or compelled or coerced. Second, Peter commends submission, but he does not endorse patriarchal institutions or entities that enforce submission. Peter's not saying, hey, the way they did things in the first century was really good. Let's bring back the good old days. If it was good enough for Paul, it should be good enough for y'all. Peter is saying that submission is voluntarily yielding to the authority of others. But it does not endorse institutions that coerce and compel and force people. Third, the fact that they are married to unbelieving husbands is not an endorsement of people marrying unbelievers. Rather, it is seeking to manage what to do when somebody comes to faith in the marriage and the other person does not. The scripture is very clear. You are free to marry whoever you want, only in the Lord. You are not free if you call yourself a Christian to marry a non-Christian. And if you are single in the room, I know this is difficult because sometimes the non-Christian people tragically are nicer than the Christian people in your life. But the scripture is clear. You are free to marry whoever you want, only in the Lord. And Peter is trying to manage what happens in the devastating situation when one of them comes to faith and the other person does not. And how is it that they are now to live together and lead a life as husband and wife? It is so intensely personal that Peter and Paul are trying to help believers in those moments and exhorting them. Fourth, reading the whole marriage relationship through the lens of submission, distorts the marriage relationship. I've met husbands, and tragically, I've met wives, who think that the only way that they relate to one another is in submission, in yielding to one another. And what that does is it creates this unhealthy tension of, 
who has the right to make the decision right now? Who has the ability to say yes to this and no to that? We're moving here, but not there. We're buying the green one and not the blue one. And what happens is that the unbelieving world sees those types of relationships and they say, that's crazy. I don't want to be a part of that at all. And it is crazy. And you don't have to be a part of it at all. That's not what the Bible is commending. The Bible is helping us see that the marriage relationship is far more complex than simply submission and yielding to authority, but that it also involves love and sacrifice and giving up of rights and living with somebody in an understanding way, according to knowledge. How do you live with people according to knowledge? You have to listen to them. You have to know what they're like. You have to know what they hate. You have to know what they enjoy. You know what, have to know where they want to go and what they want to do. And you have to live with them according to knowledge. Think of any person in your life right now that you have a difficult time being around, whether they are your spouse or your children or your friends or your boss, and you find yourself thinking from time to time, they just don't understand me. It's difficult in those moments. Why? Because they've never listened to you to know what you're actually like. To live with someone according to knowledge means we have to listen to them and know them. We have to be able to understand them. And understanding is much more difficult than simply running over people and steamrolling them. Fifth, as we think of Ephesians 5, we need to see that submission is required, but what that looks like changes culturally. That does not mean that submission is not required in the 21st century, but it was required in the first century. I think Ephesians 5 helps us see that because it relates to Christ in the church. It's something that transcends cultural context. There's this relationship that exists between husbands and wives and what they emulate. Christ sacrificing himself for his bride, the church yielding to the authority of Christ. How does the church yield to the authority? They follow his leadership. How do they follow his leadership? They do what he says. What has he said that the church needs to do? You need to repent and believe in me. You need to follow my leadership in these moments. But what that looks like changes. That's something that is culturally situated. So for example, some of you comprise dual income homes. That would have never happened in the first century. I would assume none of the wives called their husband, my Lord. That's not going to happen in the 21st century, and you shouldn't do that. And if they're talking to you about that, come talk to me. (laughs) There are ways in which it is different in the 21st century. But what we still see is that husbands and wives relate to one another in this relationship of submission and authority, sacrifice and love, so that they might build something beautiful so that when the world looks in, they not only hear the proclamation of the gospel, but they see the proclamation of the gospel. They see it in the Lord's table. They see it in baptism. They see it in the way that members are brought together in the context of the church. They see it in the way that two sinners live together. Sixth, if you're single... I know a text like this can be very difficult to read, but I just want to say something that maybe is kind of growing out of the side of the text here. Your worth is not found in whether or not you actually have a marriage relationship. One of the most unhelpful things the church of the Lord Jesus Christ does is it creates this pressure where you end up living all of these half-lives. You're a Christian, but not a full Christian until you're married. And you're not like a really good Christian until you have kids. And then a really, really good Christian to have grandkids and great-grandkids or whatever it is. And what ends up happening is that 
when people are met along the way with frustration, not getting married, or tragedy, they're not able to have children, or brokenness, a spouse leaves, they begin to think, my life no, matter, no longer matters to God, and I can no longer contribute in meaningful ways. If you have ever heard that taught here, even by accident, we want you to know that that is wrong. It was never intended. You matter. You are precious in God's sight. And the way that you learn is not simply, hey, what do I need to look for in the spouse? But you learn by helping us as covenant members of this church for those of us who are married so that we might live this out as faithful members of the church. Pray with us, pray for us, and exhort us. I give you freedom. Speak to your brothers and sisters in Christ who are not living in godly ways in the context of their marriage relationships. Exhort them to live godly lives and to set a beautiful example for the gospel. Challenge them to yield to Christ and not to their own power dynamics. Seventh, this text in no way condones abuse. And perhaps you're here today and you see this text and it is difficult because you know that it has been used to silence people. I want to first invite you, if you find yourself in a difficult circumstance where you feel like you are being abused or coerced or manipulated, to come and to speak with one of the pastors. We would love to help you. But perhaps, sisters, you might not feel comfortable coming to one of the male pastors at this church. We understand that. We would love to help you. We have female deaconesses at this church who would love to help you as well and help you get the care that you need and point you in the right direction. And if you don't know who they are, one of the things you could do is just go find one of the members and say, hey, I just need to look up who the deacons and deaconesses are. You don't have to tell them that you're looking for a female. And they can point you in the right direction so that you might be able to find somebody you can speak with. That would be a great first step. And for everybody in this room who maybe says, hey, that doesn't describe me, but I I feel like I need to learn more about what that looks like, I'm just going to recommend a couple different books for you uh, to read if you would like to do so. Darby Strickland has a really excellent book called Is It Abuse? Darby has worked with abusive men and abused women for a very long time, and that might just be a helpful resource for you as you learn how to become a better listener. Diane Langberg has an excellent book on the church and how churches have abused their authority. Diane's coming to do one of our Sunday Night Theologies later this year in July. That might be a great resource for you to read. Jeremy Pierre has an excellent book, counselor and pastor on domestic abuse and violence in the home and how the church should relate to it. That's a great resource and a good book for you to read as you begin to to realize that perhaps around you, perhaps sitting beside you today, are people who've been taken advantage of in the past, or maybe currently in the present. And the only way that we're actually going to be able to help them is if we have eyes for them and ears for them so that we learn how to listen better to serve them well. And eighth, I think I'm on eighth or ninth. Finally, and in conclusion, I want to say that the call for all of us today, men and women, young or old, whether we find ourselves married or single, with or without kids, formerly married or somebody who desires it, is that we would be people who would hear this teaching and repent. Repent of the ways that we have used the authority or stations that we have in life against other people. And that we would be people who learn how to voluntarily yield 
to appropriate authorities in our lives because the good deeds of Christians are intended for mission. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these, my brothers and sisters. I pray that you would help all of us now to respond to your word. It is a hard teaching, but we know that it is good. We thank you, Father, that in these moments that you love us more than we could ever imagine, that you want to help us more than we want to be healed, that through these words you are guiding us to life and to happiness. You are preparing us to flourish with Christ. Father, I pray now especially for those who have been oppressed and mistreated and abused and taken advantage of. May they find refuge in the Savior. And God, I pray with all of the pastors here and all of the future pastors, we pray that you would add that Christ Church Westchester would always be known as a safe haven for those who suffer and are broken, that you would protect us from ever using the authority of the church against the people we are to care for. And God, if ever a pastor or a deacon or a deaconess or a member or a man or a woman are using their authority and leadership in that way, that you would remove them from the pastorate, that you would discipline them in the life of the church for the honor of Christ and the preservation of your gospel and the protection of your church, this local church in particular. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?